Welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I am the founder and CEO of Mara Poling, and as always, happy to be with you to discuss topics of interest to the multifamily investor, whether you are a passive investor with Mara Poling or with another asset manager like us, or whether you're building your own portfolio of residential or small commercial assets. We hope that these topics are of value and interest to you. Today's topic is stress testing assets. We stress test assets for increased stability and security. That's two of the five legs of the total return that we aspire to. This we do to identify the performance envelope that we want an asset to be able to perform within to determine a 50 to even 100% margin on that envelope so that we have the stability and security optimization that we're looking for. And we actually get improved performance from these stress tests as well. So I hope you'll enjoy this session. As always, if you have questions, shoot me an email, pat at marapolling.com. Don't forget to swing by the website and enjoy some of the educational content we have there. M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. That's marapolling.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please do so so you don't miss any of our weekly content as we post new podcast sessions weekly. So stress testing assets for increased stability and security. Now, there's a variety of stress tests that we and our lending partners perform while we're in the acquisition phase. And uh, the ones the lenders perform, and, and we like them as well, they're part of our uh, analysis process. Uh, the most common one you'll see, uh, I haven't done a property yet where we haven't done this, uh, is the debt service coverage ratio, DSCR. You'll see it abbreviated as. And this is a pretty simple concept. It's the ratio of available cash from operations to the debt service. Uh, and you want to see that number above one, uh, one and a quarter or something higher than that, which at one and a quarter would mean you've got $125 in cash generated by the asset for every $100 in debt service. That gives you a cushion there, and that cushion is what provides the security. That's the stress test component. The higher that number, if it was 1.3, then you'd have $130 for every $100 of debt service, so you'd have even more security. Another that you'll see is debt yield. Uh, debt yield is simply, again, a ratio between the debt service and the uh, uh, generation of uh, uh, the asset relative to the size of the uh, of the debt yield, uh, pardon me, of the uh, of the debt service. Uh, uh, it's not as commonly used. It tends to be used in some of the shorter-term loan product that's out there. Uh, and you can see a range of returns, uh, 6 7 8% maybe on the front end, uh, and then uh, growing over time. Um, we'll focus with the lenders a little more on debt cover. Um, but those are the ones we use with the lenders. The one we want to talk about today, and it's something that we rely on a great deal it's a very helpful tool, and that is the break-even occupancy stress test. 
So as you can imagine, break-even occupancy is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It's the level of occupancy that is required for the asset to remain cash flow positive, to be right at that break-even point. And let's do a little, um, uh, a little defining of some terms and the math around it, or at least the formula behind it, uh, so that this can make a little more sense as we dive into a deeper understanding of break-even occupancy and how we use that. So tenants pay rent, right? Every month they write out their rent checks, send them in. We also get some other income, uh, things like uh, application fees. Uh, we get some laundry income if we have a laundry uh, on site. Uh, there might be a utility reimbursement uh, that's going on at the property. Uh, generally, it might be for water or for some other things. So we get some other income. You add that all up, and that's the total amount of revenue that comes in. That's cash that came in. And then we have cash that goes out, right? We pay uh, the staff for doing their work. We pay landscapers. Uh, we pay property taxes. We pay our insurance. Uh, we pay for some advertising. A number of different things that run the property on a daily basis. And what's left, right, that revenue minus those operating expenses, what's left is NOI, net operating income. And as we've talked about, that's really the key metric if you're going to look at any kind of investment, you want to understand NOI for that property uh, and how NOI performs over time, what the growth uh, curve looks like for that. Now, if you take that NOI and then you subtract from it the other cash that has to get spent because NOI does not include the debt service, right? So you subtract from that the check that has to get written to the lender, and that check will include some escrow uh, payments. Uh, insurance and taxes, which we actually covered in OPEX, would be in there. But there may be also a capital reserve amount that uh, is in there, and so that would be included uh, in that as well. When you do all of that math, you get down to the actual cash that's available to be generated to uh, investors. If that number is positive, great. What's the level of vacancy, though, that we could have that would drive that number down to zero, where we would be at break-even? That's the break-even occupancy, okay? Now, I said in the intro that part of what we want to do is identify the performance envelope. And so the very first step is uh, to do what I just described, is we adjust the vacancy number, right? We play with that and do some math to come up with what's the level of occupancy that we need in order to at least break even, right, to get to that zero uh, net number. Well, the way we do that is you take 100% occupancy, and then you subtract from that the vacancy number, and vacancy is really what we're going to be forecasting. So let's talk about vacancy. When we say the word vacancy, we mean total effective vacancy. And that's comprised of three components. The first is physical vacancy, right? How many units are empty? Nobody's in them, there's no lease, so there's nobody to write us a rent check at the beginning of the month. The second is concessions. And these are those things that you'll see from time to time when somebody will advertise 
uh, we're going to waive your application fee if you come in next week, or get your first month's rent uh, half off, uh, or a $200 reduction in your first month's rent, or whatever it might be, some uh, incentive to get people in the door. Well, those incentives reduce our revenue. If the rent on a unit's $1,000 and we're doing a $200 concession, then we're only going to get $800. That $200 needs to be accounted for. It's accounted for as a concession. So physical vacancy plus concessions plus bad debt. So bad debt is there's a tenant in a unit. They have a lease. Let's use that $1,000 lease number. They have a $1,000 lease number, and they don't pay their rent this month. And at the end of the month, uh, they leave. Maybe they're evicted. Maybe they uh, skip, right? That's essentially what we would call a self-eviction. So they just up and leave in the middle of the night. Uh, or it's possible that uh, maybe their lease is expiring, and they just didn't pay the final uh, month. So we have $1,000 in rent we are owed that we have to write off because that unit was effectively vacant that month. Yes, there was somebody physically in it, but we didn't get any revenue from it. So it's the same as if it was an empty unit. The only difference being we actually couldn't rent it because there was an actual tenant in it. So you take physical vacancy, concessions, and bad debt. You add those all up, and that gives you the total vacancy number. So if you look back at our cash flow process I just walked through, we said the top line was rent. Well, that top line of rent is reduced by vacancy, right? So if we have $100,000 in rent that we're supposed to get, right? $1,000 a month, 100 units. We're supposed to collect $1,000. If we have eight empty units and we have one tenant that's not paying us that month that we're going to write and we have to write that off, and we have $1,000 of concessions that we give away to get people to come in, then that all adds up to $10,000, which is 10% vacancy. So now we have $10,000 less in revenue. You still have the same operating expenses, so NOI is $10,000 smaller. We still have the same debt service, so that cash number gets $10,000 smaller. How large can we make that vacancy number? 10%, 12%, 15%, 20%. How large can it get before that bottom line net cash number is zero? That's break-even occupancy. And so we go through and do the math when we're doing an acquisition to determine just what that is. And I happen to have open in front of me right now the underwrite for the uh, most recent acquisition that we've uh, completed at Mara Polling. Uh, we don't share specific financials in this kind of forum, uh, so we aren't going to comment on the name of the asset, but we are going to share the actual numbers for it. So I've got the underwrite sitting in front of me, and, uh, and we'll take a look at those. So uh, the debt cover, by the way, on this particular asset uh, uh, at the beginning, right, the year one debt cover uh, was a 1.31, so uh, significantly higher than the 1.25 uh, we were uh, required to have with our lender. That means we had $131 in cash flow for um, for every uh, dollar, uh, pardon me, for every $100 in uh, debt service that we had to pay. Okay, so that's that one. But let's talk about the break-even occupancy. So break-even occupancy for this asset 
was 71.9%. And that's in the first year, so that's when we start out. 71.9%. So that means we could withstand 28.1% vacancy and we would still be cash flow positive. Uh, so is that a good number, right? Now we've defined what the performance envelope is, right? That you have to be somewhere at 28.1% vacancy or less in order to be cash flow uh, positive. Uh, so that defines the envelope. Now we want to do this margin. We want a 50 to a 100% margin. What do I mean by that? Okay. So now we go and look at a different set of data. Now we'll go and look at the historical data that we have access to for that particular asset and for the submarket, right? So we want to look at both of those. And we're going to be looking at those vacancy components. We'll be looking at the data we have on physical vacancy. We'll be looking at the data we have on concessions. And it's a little more challenging to get data on bad debt, but the data from vacancy uh, can give us some inference about uh, bad debt, and so we'll, we'll utilize that uh, in this particular instance. So we're going to look at those numbers, and then we want our break-even occupancy to be able to withstand a 150% or 200% spike in bad debt. So for, uh, pardon me, in uh, total vacancy. So for example, if the total vacancy was 10% for a property, then we want to be able to handle at least 15%, if not 20% vacancy. Okay? So let's look at this particular asset. So if I look at this particular asset, um, what I see is the historic, so I'm looking back over time, the historic high total vacancy for this asset was 13%. And again, that's a combination of physical vacancy plus bad debt plus concessions. Now, I also want to look at the market that we're in, the submarket. So in other words, the comparable assets that are located nearby within a three to maybe five mile radius. Uh, again, it all depends on kind of the sub-market. Uh, some smaller markets, it might be the entire market. In a large market, for example, like the uh, DFW Metroplex, you wouldn't look at the entire Metroplex. We'd want to look at, uh, it, you know, Plano or uh, McKinney uh, or, or uh, Fort Worth or whatever it might happen to be where the asset particularly is. And when we do that for this asset, what we see is that the market performance actually uh, had the same historic high at the exact same uh, period in time. It was the same spike. Uh, so um, we're comfortable that uh, both of these data points sync up. If one was higher than the other, especially by some meaningful amount, we want to use the higher one then. So let's say that the asset had only had a high vacancy of 10%, but the market was 13, then we'd want to look at 13%, right? That gives us the greatest comfort. So that defines the margin. So for this particular asset, 13% is the peak. So 150% of that would be 20%, meaning we'd need an 80% break-even occupancy in order to be comfortable. 
we'd really like to be closer to that 200. It's not essential, it's not a requirement, but we'd certainly feel even better if we were closer to that 200, which would mean a 26% total vacancy or a 74% break-even occupancy. So look back at the number I said the break-even occupancy was for this asset in year one, which was 71.9%. 71.9% is meets the 150%, it meets the 200%, and it's actually a little bit higher than that. I didn't do the math on it. Let's do that real quick. 28.1 divided by 13 is 216%. So it's 216% uh, is how much we can withstand. Uh, that's really strong. So that's, that's a very positive uh, number. That's the look at the very first year. And by the way, that's what the lender's going to look at. Everybody's really looking at the first year. Part of the logic behind that is as we own an asset, its performance is going to improve over time. Uh, part of that is just the natural movement of rent in the marketplace. The other is, in particular for our assets, we're making investments, value-add investments that improve the performance of the, uh, of the asset. So as we, um, as we do that over time, it's going to improve. With the base underwrite that we had for that particular asset, over time, the break-even occupancy number actually drops to 66.3%, meaning we have an even larger cushion. Now we're at 33.7% uh, vacancy that we could withstand, and that's if we look out three years. But what happens if we don't hit those rent numbers? What happens if we don't get the rent increases we want? So one of the stress tests we'll run is we go and we pull that revenue growth number back. We basically pull it back to zero. So the, there's just some basic movement that occurs in the marketplace. We're not looking at any additional rent increase that we would get for our capital investment. If we do that on this particular asset, our break-even occupancy is still slightly better than the 71.9. It's 69.9%, meaning we've got 30.1% of vacancy that we can withstand, which, and again, I'll do the math real quick, 30.1 is 232% of our 13% historic high. Now, by the way, this asset is not running at 13% right now. It's currently sub 10% in terms of its total vacancy um, and uh, performing real well. So we're very happy with it from that standpoint. So when we look at this, what does this tell us? This tells us that we, we have an asset that is uh, appropriately levered. Uh, by the way, this is one of the questions we get on occasion is, well, how much leverage can I put it on an asset, or how much leverage do you folks put on assets? Well, generally speaking, we'll put about 40% of the purchase price into an asset in cash. Some of that is for the down payment, or what you'd call the down payment. Some of that's for the closing costs, and then there's a chunk of money in there for the capital improvements. That gives us a pretty modest amount of leverage to, uh, to start with. Um, but one of the ways you can tell if you're over-levering, or that we tell if we're over-levering, is this break-even number. Because if I push that leverage number up, then the debt service number is going to get higher. My, 
my cash flow is not going to change, right? I'm still going to get the same amount of revenue, still going to have the same operating expense, but I'm not going to have, I'm going to have a bigger uh, debt service, which means I'm going to have um, less net cash at the end of the, at the end of the day, uh, because my NOI isn't really changed, it's the debt service number. And that's going to move my break-even occupancy number up. So in this particular asset, we could have taken out some additional debt, uh, and we still would have fit within our uh, range. We chose not to do so for a variety of reasons, but, um, but we could have done that and still been within, uh, within range. So uh, not only can we get some improved performance, but we can have a great deal of confidence that when there is economic disruption, and that was really the reason for today's topic about stress testing assets, is we are currently experiencing some economic disruption. Now, it hasn't rippled through yet to the multifamily marketplace. Uh, uh, there are tenants out there we are quite confident that are being affected by uh, the response in the economy to the uh, COVID-19 uh, virus, uh, whether that's their hours being cut or they might have a furlough uh, or just their concern uh, given everything that's going on. Maybe the schools are closed and they had to take two weeks off unpaid to take care of their kids. Uh, there, are, there is some economic disruption that's going on, and we will most likely see a short-term spike in some of these vacancy items. Again, Class B assets, uh, when they experience these disruptions, it's a spike. We do not see long-term trend changes uh, when an economic disruption comes in, and that's in part because of this Goldilocks effect of the Bs being sandwiched between As and uh, and Cs. So we absolutely have positioned ourselves for greater stability and security, uh, for better performance uh, in the asset, and with that margin, we can be very confident that this asset will not be in a position where we'll have to dive into any reserves. And we maintain healthy reserves for all of our assets, uh, but obviously we don't want to live on reserves. We want to we want to have the assets stand on their own two feet. So if you're looking at an investment, uh, and again, you might be interested in working with us, maybe you're talking with someone else, or maybe you're buying a property on your own, understanding how uh, those assets are stress tested and how they perform uh, can help you improve your ability to sleep well at night knowing that even through the downturn portion of the economic cycle, and we don't know that we're in a recession or headed for one, uh, but at some point in time we will, right? We're going to own real, real estate long term. We will eventually own it during a recession. And when that occurs, we want to be in a position where our assets can continue to perform. And this stress test in particular allows us to do that. So as I said before, if you have any questions, shoot me an email, pat at marapolling.com. Swing by the website, lots of good material there. Please join us again next week for another episode of Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Poling. <music>